You're listening to audio from Plank Grove Harvest Church located in Crossville, Tennessee. If you'd like more information about our church and its various ministries, please visit our website at www.plankgroveharvest.org. So we're going to look at the last speech of Bildad uh, tonight. We left off in chapter 24 and Job was speaking about his fear and his dread of God, right? Remember he was a man that was torn. He was like, I know I'm gonna, this is what I'm going to say to God and he's, gonna, he's going to acquit me. And then he realizes, well, God's all-powerful, and if God wants to keep me here, he can. And that's a fearful thought that I don't even want to think about. So Job has been waffling back and forth. He spoke about the fear and dread of God. And uh, now we're going to hear Bildad speak up and emphasize the power of God as well and the fear that it should bring. So it's an interesting conversation here. Uh, So we'll read chapter 25 and, and break it down. But it says, Then Bildad the Shuhat answered and said, Dominion and fear are with God. He makes peace in his high heaven. Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does his light not arise? How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright, and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man who is a maggot, and the son of man who is a worm? And so Bildad, shockingly, doesn't have a ton to say here. But uh, he speaks about the, the power of God, and then he speaks about the status of man. And so he's real quick to speak up after Job has talked now about fear and darkness. And he wants to jump on that point. I can imagine that, that Bildad jumps in real quick. He says not very much, and then he's done. But he wants to emphasize what Job has just spoke about. And he states that dominion and fear are with God. Now, it's interesting that this word fear here that's used... It's used in an interesting context, and it's just an example, I think, of how our English words lack and sometimes don't do Scripture justice because the fear of God is referenced multiple times in Scripture, right? We know that. We read about fear. Somebody told me once there's 365 instances that say fear not, and it's an interesting coincidence that we have 365 days in a year, but there's 365 instances of, hey, don't fear. Jesus tells us not to fear. God tells us not to fear. But there's an, fear is used a lot in Scripture, and specifically the fear of God. And so one example is Proverbs 9.10. 10, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Right? So if I want to be a wise individual, that starts with the fear of the Lord. And in that context, the fear of the Lord is kind of like a great awe and reverence of who God is. Like understanding who God is and understanding who I am. Right? That's the beginning of wisdom. Now, does, does that term, this fear used that way, does it include this scared, a scared type of fear, right? And I would argue that to some degree it does, because if I recognize the sovereignty and power of God, uh, that should bring some sense of a scared type of fear upon me, because he's capable of things that I'm not, and he's in control. But for the most part, that type of fear is a, is a healthy awe and reverence of this is the one true God. I know who he is, I know who I am, and I'm in awe of him, right? But in Job, when we've repeatedly seen this word fear used, it's used in the context of actual fear as a result of action. So, so Bildad's kind of harping on Job and saying, you should be fearful of God because look at the situation you're in. Look at what he's done to you. That should cause you to fear him. So it's a different use of this word fear. Um, God has taken action because of your sin, and you're right to fear him. That's what Bildad's saying. 
He says he's the one that's in complete control from his high place in heaven all the way down to your lowly place on earth. So you should fear him because dominion and fear are with God. And Bildad continues to emphasize God's power. And in verse 3, he says, is there any number to his armies? In other words, he's talking about the angels of God. And, and throughout Scripture, again, if we look at that topic, there's references to God's angels, and there's references to large numbers of angels, but no one really knows how large God's army is, right? It's multitudes upon multitudes upon multitudes. So the point is, that Bildad is trying to make, the point is, it's, it's large. He's saying, who can count the army of God? I mean, it's, it's almost like the, it's, he's just insinuating nobody can. Right? It's a rhetorical question. Nobody can count that high. It's a large army. And that's the way that God exacts his power. So yeah, you should be fearful of him, Job, because of the almighty power of God. And, and your state is a sinner, especially. That's why you should fear God. If he's got these armies that you can't even count, and he's the one that's in control, you're right to fear. And if you'll remember, just in the previous conversation, Job complained about being in darkness. Right? I, feel, I feel like I'm all alone. I'm in darkness. God doesn't. Uh, Eliphaz is the one that put words into Job's mouth and said, Job, you're, you're acting like God's too far removed from you that he didn't even know what's going on in your life. And remember, we talked about how that was an assumption on Eliphaz's part and not something that you could actually pin on Job. Right? Job was confused about his situation. It didn't make sense to him, but he never actually accuses God of not knowing about his situation or not knowing him. In fact, he states the opposite numerous times because Job is the one that says, God's the one with his hand on me. He's the one that's caused this situation. So it's interesting to see time and time again, over and over, how the words of Job's friends are used in a way that provides support for their argument. Even if it means openly contradicting what Job has just told them. Like Job is trying to have a conversation. Remember, how many times does he call upon those guys and say, you're here to comfort me, right? Like, where's the comfort? You're taking my words and you're twisting them or you're just downright not even listening to them just to prove your point. You're not interested in comforting me. You just want to prove that you're right. They're not listening. That's the point. They're not interested in providing support. They're interested in being right. That's all his friends are, interested in being right. So Bildad tells Job that, hey, man, your comments about darkness is not true. He says, upon whom does his light not arise? He's like, there is no darkness. God's light shines on everyone. He sees all, he reveals all. And so the assumption by Bildad here is, Job, you're not in darkness. Your sin's been fully exposed. And God has brought it out in the open, and that's why you're suffering. Because of the result of your sin, don't pretend that you're hiding in darkness. God's clearly seen your sin, and now he's taken it out on you. So, so Bildad's right in these three verses He's right that God's all-powerful. He's right that the armies of God are uncountable. And he's right that God's light does overcome all darkness. But he's using these truths in order to continue beating a man down with false accusations. It's not the truth. And so he goes on in the, in the latter half, in verses 4 through 6 of his short little speech, and he's going to talk about the position of man. So he's talked about the power of God, and now he's going to talk about the position of man. And he's argued that God's all-powerful and he sees all. And so if that's the case, then it's very clear to him that it would be impossible for any man to be counted as righteous before God. There's no way. 
And again, you, you've got to understand what's going on here. That's a direct assault on Job and his claim. What's he said over and over and over? I'm a blameless and upright man. So this is a direct attack on Job. Bildad's openly telling Job that what you've told me, what you've told me about your character, that's completely impossible. That's an impossibility. Because look at the situation you find yourself in. You're being judged because of your own sin. That's the point that Bildad's trying to make. We also have to make a note that this is a repeat. It's just, it's, everything's on repeat. It's like a radio player that's stuck, and it's playing the same song over and over. It's a repeat of the same arguments that we've heard before. Eliphaz in chapter 15, it's the same thing. There's no way that you're righteous. It's impossible. And so by the time we get to this third round of speeches, it's clear to see that there's, there's no more independent thought here. There's, there's nothing new going on. We're just going back and forth, and they're repeating the same line. They're not listening to Job at all, and they're trying to hammer the same point home. And that's all they can do is restate it. So have you ever, I'll give you a crazy example that I see all the time at, at the baseball field, specifically at youth baseball fields. But have you, have you ever seen someone not get what they're after, right? I want to get something, and I'm not getting it, so I'm just going to yell louder. And if I yell louder, then I'm, that's going to work, and I'm going to get what I want, right? So if you, if you watched a pitcher, and he's not throwing strikes, and either a really bad coach or a parent is screaming from the stands, just throw strikes! Like they think that if I just yell that louder and louder, that all of a sudden the kid's going to throw strikes now. That's not the problem, right? And that's what's happening here with these friends. They're, they're trying to convince Job that you're not upright and blameless. You're actually a sinner, and it's the sin that's caused the punishment. That's why you're in the mess you're in. Job is constantly trying to counter that argument. They're not listening. They're just yelling louder the same thing. And, and just because they yell it at a louder volume or they keep repeating the same argument doesn't mean they're getting the, the same result. It's a standoff. That's what we've seen with these three friends in Job. It's a standoff. And they're both deeply entrenched, like nobody's budging. And what happens, and you've seen this come from Job's mouth, the only thing that's accomplished is more misery for Job. I mean, he's openly told his friends that. So, so Bildad's belief that Job's righteousness is impossible, he shows it here in these three verses using this greater to lesser argument. Right? He begins with the moon and the stars. Actually, he begins with the question. He says, how then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? It's impossible, Job. How is that, how is that even possible? It's not. He says, look, even the moon's not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes. He's arguing that even these heavenly bodies in all their majesty, they're not considered bright to God. It's almost as if to imply that God doesn't need their light to see things. right? And then Bildad moves on to the lesser, and he talks about man. He says, how much less man, who is a maggot, and the son of man, who's a worm? He, it's almost as if he's saying, here, you consider yourself righteous and blameless, but there's nothing further from the truth. And as a result of your sin, you're nothing more than a maggot to God. God doesn't look at the moon or the stars and count them as special, so why would he count you special? In fact, you're not special, you're a maggot. That's what he tells him. You're the lowest of the low. So Bildad clearly has made his point here, and he's got this low view of man. So low 
it's it's almost like we could ask the question. I, I I don't think that I had time to completely flesh this out as much as I wanted to this week, but it's almost like you can ask the question, then why call Job to repent? I mean, you're hammering the guy over the head, chapter after chapter after chapter, repent, 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 and then you're telling him right here, it's a lost cause. You can't, you're nothing but a maggot, you can't be righteous. It doesn't make sense. What's the point? It It doesn't seem to add up. Because Bildad's worldview appears to paint a hopeless picture for all mankind. And I just I wrote here down here, praise be to God that mankind is not hopeless and that God views mankind as much more than maggots. And that's kind of the point that we're going to get to here in a minute. But let's look at Job's rebuttal here in, in chapter 26. It says, Then Job answered and said, and I, I just get this feel that as we move through these conversations more and more, there's not a lot of pause here. Job answers really quick. And he says, How have you helped him who has no power? How have you saved the arm that has no strength? How have you counseled him who has no wisdom and plentifully declared sound knowledge? With whose help have you uttered words and whose breath has come out from you? The dead tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Sheol is naked before God and Abaddon has no covering. He stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the waters in his thick clouds, and the cloud is not split open under them. He covers the face of the full moon and spreads it over its cloud. He has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. By his power he stilled the sea. By his understanding he shattered Rahab. By the winds the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Behold, this is a key verse of this whole chapter. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small of a whisper do we hear of him? But the thunder of his power, who can understand? So Job, Job's not going to take the words of Bildad sitting down. He's heard enough. And it's interesting that we're going to hear, we hear the same argument from both men that God is all-powerful. And yet they disagree with each other vehemently. Same point, but they disagree with each other. But the disagreement doesn't rest in the question of, is God all-powerful? It rests in the question, I think, of how does God see man? That, that's the real question. How does God see man? And Job begins his rebuttal by rebuking Bildad's attempted counsel. And you see a lot of sarcasm here. He sarcastically praises the excellent work of Bildad. Right? He says... How have you helped him who has no power? Like, what a great job. Oh, man, how have you saved the arm that has no strength? How have you counseled him who has no wisdom? And you have plentifully declared sound knowledge. But what he's really saying is, wait a minute, how, how have you helped me exactly? Like, you're the one that's saying I'm without power due to the situation I find myself in, but, but how have you helped me? You can clearly see that I'm struggling here, Right? Physical strength, check. Mental strength, check. Emotional strength, check. I'm lacking in all departments. But does my situation look easy to you? I mean, this is what I'm hearing from Job. Does my situation look easy to you? It's clear that I need rescued. And yet, how have you saved me? Like, what have you done? Isn't that why you came? I'm the one that's lacking in wisdom. So if that's the case, that's what you're accusing me of. What's this great knowledge that you've shared with me? And how have you counseled me? Because, pardon me, Bildad, for just a moment, I'm, I'm struggling to see it. Like, I'm struggling to see how you've helped me. 
Then it's interesting because Job essentially tells Bildad to examine his friends and look in the mirror. It says, With whose help have you uttered words? And whose breath has come out from you? He says, who, who, are you, who are you providing counsel to? Right? I mean, who are you providing counsel to? And whose breath has come out of you? Those are just smooth words that are used to say, basically, hey, examine yourself, man. Examine yourself. Look in the mirror and examine me. Are you sure about this? Are you really sure about what you've, you've said for the last three conversations? The last three times we spoke, and I've listened to your buddy speak, are you really sure about this? From here, Joe basically, he switches over and he's going to talk about the power of God now. And he basically affirms what Bildad has said about the power of God, right? He says, basically, the dead tremble. God's so powerful that the dead tremble. He says, death and hell, they have no power over God. It's interesting. The Bible's not a science book, but it's dang right when it talks about science. And it's interesting that this was one of the oldest books in the Bible, and it says, he hangs the earth on nothing. And that's fascinating. I mean, it's a planet that's just hanging in the sky, and it does what it does. And even to this day, people really don't know why it does that. But it, Job tells us right here, he's so powerful that he hangs the earth on nothing. He talks about rain in the clouds. He's essentially talking about water vapor. He said, the clouds got rain in them, but guess what? It doesn't burst open until God says. He's in complete control of those clouds. He's, he marks the boundaries of the water. He says, you see the, you see the ocean? It stays put because he tells it to stay put. You see the lake? It stays put because he tells it to. He controls light and darkness. See when the sun comes up? Yeah, he's in control of that. When it goes down? Yeah, he's in control of that too. He's in control of earthquakes, volcanoes, and mountains. That's what it, I think it's speaking of when it says the pillars of heaven tremble. And it says he's in control of the seas and the wind. With power he stilled the sea. By his wind the heavens were made fair. He's in control of the sea and the wind. But, but the, again, what I mentioned a minute ago, verse 14, that's the real remarkable statement. He says, these are but the outskirts of his ways. So in other words, what we know of God's power is only scratching the surface. I mean, we just pretend to know. We're only scratching the surface. We can't even begin to fathom how powerful God is. We can't truly understand it. So he affirms the fact that, that the argument that Bildad makes that God is all-powerful. Right? They both agree on that. But I think where they disagree is how God views man. And maybe I'm breaking the rules here. It's okay. But Job doesn't seem to make a direct statement in chapter 26 about how God views mankind. But I do believe that his previous rebuttals have made how, what he thinks about that very clear. Right? And when we compare Job's view with the view of his three friends, what we see is a stark contrast. Right? Bildad and his two friends have made it clear that not only is Job not righteous, but that there's no way for a man to be viewed by God as righteous. All men are sinners and God views them as the lowest of the low. Remember, Bildad just said in chapter 25, he used the specific word maggots. You're a maggot, Job. So I want you to remember Bildad's question. He says, how then can man be in the right before God? 
I think another way for us to view that question or to think about that question is to see it as a very similar question that's posed in Scripture. What is man that God God is mindful of me? That's a very similar question to Bildad's that we see from David in Psalm 8-4. What is man that God is mindful of him? How does God view mankind? Right? David states in verse 5, if you want to flip over to Psalm 8, David says in verse 5, well, let's just back up to verse 4. He says, What is man that you are mindful of him, and that the son of man that you care for him? In verse 5, he seems to be making a very similar statement to the statement that Bildad makes. He says, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Isn't that what Bildad argued? But he says, And you've crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. And you've put all things under his feet. So again, David seems to be in agreement with Bildad. It's this, it's this greater, lesser argument. However, what does David say next? He says, you, you crowned him with glory and honor. What, what a stark contrast to the words of Bildad. There's, there's no maggots here. David's not talking about maggots. David declares that God views man highly. And he goes on, not just views him highly, he says, you've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. David's words are hearkening back to creation in which God gave man dominion over the earth. See, man was created as a representative of God. It's an extension of him on earth. And so David recognizes who he is and what God has called him to. And the only appropriate response to that is worship and that's what we see from david at the end of this psalm he says "O lord O lord how majestic is your name in all the earth he's worthy to be praised because of his love for us and again where where are the maggots right bildad's view his own worldview it doesn't stand the test of scripture so if you if you look at bildad's statements or take any of the three friends and you really analyze those those arguments well, what does the rest of Scripture have to say about them? They don't hold water. Both men are correct that God's all-powerful. Bildad argues that there's no hope for man. But Job's argument seems to be quite the opposite, right? He's the one that's calling out for a, for a mediator. Now, if we look at, at this through our New Testament lens, there, I said New Testament, Mark will be happy. That, If we look at that through our New Testament lens, you could make the argument that Bildad isn't completely wrong. He's not 100% off base, right? The sinner outside of Christ is without hope. But Job's recognized his need for an advocate or a mediator. And that mediator is Christ, who's our only hope, right? Jesus is a picture. He is God's love incarnate. He created us to be his representatives, Right? And through Christ, he seeks to restore all that was broken as a result of the fall through us. So it's, it's unfair and it's incorrect to, to, to take on or to accept Bildad's view that we're all hopeless and, and there's nothing, we're nothing more than maggots. Right? It's, but it is, it is a reasonable question for man to ask the same question that Bildad asked. How can a man be right before an all-powerful God? Right? And the answer, the only answer to that question is 
through God's own love. And that love has a name, Jesus Christ. I've, I've got written down here just in closing, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 6. And it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. See, Bildad says there is no hope. But that's not what this says. He's caused us to be born again into a living hope through the what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So man is not without hope. Man's status before God is not the place of a maggot. I'm not sure man's status could be much higher because God was willing to pay the highest price so that we could be reconciled to Him. That's, I think that, maybe that's a stretch, but I think that's, that's the message that you see in chapters 25 and 26 of Job, it's like man's not hopeless. The condition of man is not hopeless. Bildad's wrong. And so what's, what's the personal implications just as we, as we close out? Just three simple things. Th- three important questions that I think we have to ask ourselves. This is the first point. Three important questions we've got to ask ourselves. And kind of, kind of leaning off of the sarcastic comments that Job made. How have, how have you, how have I, how have we helped the powerless? I mean, Job was sarcastic in, in making that comment to Bildad, but as believers, how have we helped the powerless? How have we counseled those without wisdom? In other words, how have we counseled those or reached out to those that don't have a knowledge of Jesus Christ? And it's interesting, Job asks a question of, of Bildad. He said, whose, whose breaths come out of you? In other words, where, where did you get this? Where did you get this argument? And I think that's a fair question for us to ask ourselves as we reach out to others and as we counsel others, as I give somebody a, a co-worker advice or whatever it be, man on the street. If, I, if words come out of me, the question should be asked, whose breath come out of you? And if I'm a representative of Christ, then it should be Christ's breath that comes out of me, not my own. The second point is just... is. The, the thing that is implications for us is comes from Bildad and Job that God is all-powerful and he's worthy of our reverence and awe. Both men were right on that account that God is all-powerful and worthy of our reverence and awe. We need to recognize that. And we also need to recognize that what we know of him, as Job said, these, this is just the outskirts of his ways, man. We're just scratching the surface. And we ought to look forward. I've had conversations with Charlie, who's under the weather this weekend. But we've had conversations, and he's a little older than me, just about the interesting progression of life, that as you get older and older and older, you long for heaven more and more and more. And part of that's because I want to know more than the outskirts. I want to know more than the outskirts. And there's going to be a day when I'm going to know it all. And that's, that's an exciting day to look forward to. And then the, just the third thing is just a simple question to ask yourself. Do you live in accordance with the way that God sees you? He doesn't see you as a maggot, right? He, he sees you and in such a high status that he was willing to send his son to die for you. And do I, do I live in accordance with that? Do I act in a manner that's worthy of that sacrifice? That's, that's a lot of pressure. 
But that's what you're called to. I mean, if he was willing to go to the ultimate extreme to redeem me, then what do I owe him with my very own life? I mean, I think that, I mean, I think we talk about that day when I'm going to know all and when I'm going to experience life with him side by side. I think that it's fair to believe that that question will be asked of me at some point, like, would you bring me? Right? I mean, it's like the, it's like the parables in the New Testament where, you know, God expects a return on his investment and he's redeemed me and he doesn't expect me just to come with me. He expects me to bring some interest, you know, in, in the, in the, what's the word I'm looking for? The interest is souls. That's what he expects me to bring. Yeah, a downline or a, tr- a paper trail, right? <laughs> Behind me, like breadcrumbs. I'm leaving the gospel everywhere I go and I'm going to bring people with me. So, so do I live in accordance with the way that God sees me? Do my actions prove that I understand the great love that he has for me? Because if I do, then I'm willing to share that love with other people. That doesn't mean they're always going to like it, but I'm called to share it, right?